Imagine you have the opportunity to hear the best, most life-changing advice from the most intelligent, insightful, wise human being the world has ever known. What would it be worth to you? Well, today you and I get that opportunity. Jesus Christ, the most intelligent, insightful, wise human being the world has ever known, will answer one of the most important questions in life for us today in our Bible study. We're picking up in verse 34 of Matthew 22, and just to uh, establish the setting here. Since the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on that amazing day when he received a king's welcome with the people chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the king. Since that day, the religious leaders have been plotting how to get rid of Jesus once and for all. The religious leaders hate Jesus and they want to kill him. He threatens everything they have built for themselves. They've been assaulting him with a series of questions designed to trip him up. They're trying to destroy his reputation with the common people or to put him at odds with the Roman government so that the government will see him as a dangerous insurrectionist needing to be put down. Well, each question that they have asked Jesus has been met with a response by Jesus that has revealed their hypocrisy and his incomparable wisdom and insight into the human heart and things of God. They've walked away from each encounter with Jesus, frustrated, humiliated, angry, defeated. But in spite of all that, they're coming back for more. Verse 34. It says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So when the Pharisees see how Jesus has handled the Sadducees and their question about marriage at the resurrection, which we looked at last time, hopefully you remembered that, they get their top guns together to take another run at Jesus. This is the Pharisees' second attempt. You might remember they had taken a crack at Jesus before when they asked him about paying taxes to the Romans. They put forward now one of their very best, an expert in the religious law of the Jews, to ask Jesus a question. And my initial reaction to the question that this man asked Jesus is this, is that that is a great question. That is a great question. He doesn't waste Jesus' time asking some silly question about whose wife a woman would be in heaven after being the wife of seven different brothers on earth? You'll remember that was the question that the Sadducees posed to Jesus last time. Instead, he asks a question whose answer really matters. He asks a question that we all want to know the answer to. The Jewish teachers, they counted 613 individual statutes in their religious law. 365 negative laws and 248 positive laws. That didn't include, then, also the many traditions of the elders which they also followed. They spent a tremendous amount of their time discussing and trying to differentiate between what they would consider the great commandments and the 
little commandments. They also spent a great amount of time trying to formulate principles from which the rest of the law could be deduced. They tried to come up with single statements that would capture the big idea behind many commandments. One of the famous examples of this is from the great Jewish Rabbi Hillel, who, when asked to sum up the law of God for a Gentile seeking to convert to Judaism, said, what you hate for yourself, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. Well, this person in our story here is asking Jesus to do a similar thing, to boil down the many commandments to the most fundamental, essential, basic elements. What is the greatest commandment? What is the commandment that sums up the law and the prophets, he asks. In verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus, he quotes a familiar passage of the Old Testament in his answer to this man's question. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5 was, and it still is, recited by devout Jews every morning and every evening as part of their devotions. It's known as the Shema, the name comes from the first word of the verse in Hebrew, meaning hear or listen. Now, although Hebrews 6.4, the first part of the Shema, is not included in Matthew's telling of this story, we know from Mark's telling of this story that it was included in Jesus' answer here. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it affirms two important truths about God. The first is the unity or the oneness of God. The Lord is one God. And two, the covenant relationship of God with his people, the Lord our God. Well, first, the unity or the oneness of God. There is only one God. It's important that we love and worship the one real true God. Not just any God will do, not just any ideas about God will do. It does matter what God we believe in, and how we believe in that God. Israel was surrounded by peoples who were polytheistic. They believed in many gods, worshipped many gods. The message that God gave to Israel, and they were in turn to give to the rest of the world, was that there is really only one God, the God that created all things, Yahweh. Now, whether we like it or not, the Bible has declared that there is only one true God. There is no others. And there is a wrong and a right way to have a relationship with the one true God. Jesus himself said there is only one true God, and those who worship God must worship through Jesus. He is the way, the path, the conduit, the passage through which we have a relationship with the one true God. Now, the second truth that Deuteronomy 6.4 affirms about God is the covenant relationship that God has with his people. Through Jesus, this is our God. He has made himself our God. He has established a relationship with us. We are his people, 
and he is our God. Now to say and to know that the Lord is our God, that was once the affirmation and the truth of the Jewish people alone. But now through Jesus Christ, this affirmation, this truth can be also ours. He can be our God through Jesus. Well, Deuteronomy 6.5, which is the second part of this quotation, the part that is quoted here in Matthew 22.37, says God is to be loved completely and totally because He is, and He alone, is God, and because He has made this covenant of love with us as His people. In this covenant, God gives Himself totally in love to his people. He has held nothing back. He has given his precious son, Jesus, to establish this relationship with us. He expects his people to give themselves totally in love to him in return. Well, what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to by this word love? Is it a romantic love? Is it emotional? How do we express our love to God? What kind of Actions and behavior and attitude accompanies someone who loves God. Well, the Greek word used for love here in this verse is that word for love, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, agape, which includes more than mere fondness. It includes our will and our actions as well as our emotions. So a warm, emotional love for God is a very good thing to have. And I encourage all of us, to have a warm affection for our Heavenly Father. But the love talked about here, it's deeper and it's wider than merely warm feelings. It involves our will and our actions too. Now if we carefully read Deuteronomy 6.5, Matthew 22.37, Mark 12.30, and other similar passages, which are all quoting this same uh, thing. We notice slight variations in the wording. Deuteronomy says to love God with our heart, our soul, and our strength. Matthew says to love God with our heart, our soul, and our mind. Mark says to love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Luke says to love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. And there are other passages that say to love God with our heart and our soul. Well, what are we to make of these differences? First, there's no reason to panic. A number of these quotations are not intended to be exact word-for-word quotations, but rather pointers back to the passage that the writer assumes the readers are familiar with. We do the same thing. We will make reference to a larger passage with a shorthand quotation of that thing. And some of these are simply that. In some instances, the translation of the ideas from Hebrew into English explains the differences. The big point I want to make here is that we don't want to get hung up on trying to figure out where the dividing line between various facets of our being 
lie. Trying to determine where our heart ends and our soul begins misses the point of what we are being taught in these passages. The point is that all of me should love God, every facet of me, every part of me, every fiber of my being. Again, without getting tingled up with trying to determine the dividing lines between various aspects of our being, let's consider for just a quick moment what is meant by our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love God with all our heart. The heart typically refers to the center of a person's being, what the Bible calls the wellspring of life. The heart is the governing center of our life. We are to love God with the very core of our being. We're to love God with all our soul. The soul usually refers to the life of a person. We are to love God with our whole life force. We're to love God with all our mind. The, the mind refers to our understanding and thoughts and our affections and desires. Our thoughts are to be filled with love for God. Our understanding of everything around us should be colored by our love for God. Our love for God should permeate our intellect. Love for God should be at the center of our desires. We're to love God with all our strength. Our physical being is to be devoted to God in love. We are to love God with our actions. So taken together, we're to love God with every facet of ourself. There is no part of us excluded from this call to love God. All of me is to love God. Loving God is the most important commandment because if we really love God, we will obey Him and do what pleases Him. In fact, obeying God is one of the ways that we express our love for Him. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. In John 14, 21, He said, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. In John 14, 23, he said, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And then John himself writes in 1 John 5, 3, In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. Verse 39, Jesus continued his answer. He says, And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus, he actually gives this guy a two-for-one deal. Jesus not only tells us the most important commandment, he also tells us the second most important commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a natural outgrowth, an expression of our love for God, actually. This is a quotation from Leviticus 19.18. And these two commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor belong together. 1 John 4.20, John wrote this, he says, Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. They go together. 
If a person truly loves God, it will inspire and motivate them to love others. And love for others is evidence that we love God. These two, love for God and love for others, are so interconnected with one another that failure to love God is a failure to love our neighbor, and a failure to love our neighbor is a failure to love God. We can't have one without the other. And if we have one, we will also have the other. Love your neighbor as yourself. The love for self being talked about in this command has nothing to do with the concept in modern psychology of loving oneself and self-esteem. This is a different topic. That's not included in this. Love for self is being used here as a comparison. The point is this, is that we have a natural love for ourself. We care for ourselves. We look out for our best interests. We make sure we have food to eat and clothes to wear and a place to sleep. We seek out our happiness and well-being. We naturally seek to save our own neck over that of others. We naturally place ourselves first on our priority list. Jesus is teaching that the same kind of Care and concern that we have for ourselves should be extended to our neighbor. The word translated into English as love is again here the same Greek word, agape. In the same way that our love for God is to be more than just warm feelings, our love that we're to have for others is also to be more than just warm feelings. This kind of love is something we can choose to do even if feelings are not present in the moment. Here's a description of agape love given by Paul in his first letter to the church at Corinth. And we have read this passage many times in the past, and we will read this passage many times in the future. This is one of those passages of Scripture that we need to hear again and again. So it is etched on our minds. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love Agape love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. This is the love that we are to have for our neighbor. So the next question that comes up is, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers that question, too, for us in a similar conversation that he had with an expert in the Jewish religious law in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 10, where he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're not going to look at that parable this morning, but the bottom line of that parable is this. Jesus defines our neighbor as any human being that we come across, especially a person in need. We are not to try to decide if someone is our neighbor. We are simply to be a neighbor to everyone. Paul, he repeats the teachings, the same teaching by Jesus to love our neighbor as ourself in his letters Over in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, 
He said, let no debt remain outstanding except a continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. He wrote again in Galatians 5.14, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, now it's Jesus' turn to ask the religious leaders a question in verse 41. It says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. Now, from their point of view, the question that Jesus asked them is obvious. In fact, the question is so obvious that it borders on silly in their estimation. For them, this question is so obvious, they're wondering why he's even asking it at all. See, they have been sparring with Jesus for the past few days, bringing their toughest questions to him, trying to trip him up, and now it's his turn, and he comes up with the question, whose son is the Messiah? There may have been a few snickers among these religious leaders. They're thinking, is that the best you've got, Jesus? I mean, everybody knows whose son is the Messiah. It's David. According to the prophecies that were commonly talked about, the Messiah would come from the family line of David, Israel's greatest and most celebrated king. There was, as far as the popular view of the day went, concerning who the Messiah was, that's the whole sum total story. But in the next verses, Jesus, he's going to point out that that's only part of the answer. The Messiah, being a descendant of David, is only the tip of the iceberg. The portion of an iceberg that's visible above the surface of the water is a very small portion of the entire mass of the iceberg, right? We all know that from the story of the Titanic. The much larger portion of the iceberg is below the water's surface, hidden from view. And the nature of the Messiah is kind of like an iceberg in that regard. On the surface, he may appear to be just a human being, a descendant of King David, but beneath the surface, we discover that his humanness is only a small portion of his entirety. In verse 43, Jesus said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him, David, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, to show that the answer given by the religious leaders is incomplete. In this psalm, David 
calls the Messiah his Lord. Jesus asks him how the Messiah can be at the same time both David's son and David's Lord. And the answer is found in what is known as the Incarnation. God becoming human. God clothed in human flesh. The Messiah is both God and human at the same time. Jesus is alluding to his own divinity here. His godness. He is a descendant of David from the human side of his ancestry, but he is God the Son from the divine side of his ancestry. As a result, Jesus is indeed superior to David and deserving to be called his Lord because he is the Lord. Whose son is the Messiah? He is the Son of God, born into the human lineage of David. Isaiah 7, 14 said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be conceived and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 46, no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. (laughs) In closing, I want to take us back to that question that the Pharisee had asked Jesus. Before I became a follower of Jesus Christ, the word commandments it made me bristle. I resented the idea of God imposing his rules on me. The thing I didn't understand about God's commandments, though, is that they are not primarily about right and wrong behavior, but about right and wrong relationship. First, relationship between us and God, and second, relationship between us. God's commandments are given for our benefit. Not his. The commandments are for our well-being and protection, making it possible for us to experience the richest life possible for us in this world. What are the most important commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Why are these the most important commandments? Relationship with God is what we long for at the deepest part of our being. We're bottomless pits of want. And the only thing that can fill that void is God. Loving God makes us complete and whole. Loving God is the eternal fascination. Loving God is what we were made to do. It's our purpose and our destiny. Loving God inspires and motivates us to please Him. Loving our neighbor is the most noble and honorable thing that we can do in this life. Think about the impact it would have on our life if we were to make it our ambition to do these two things consistently. Love God and love others. It would transform us, and it would transform the world around us, wouldn't it? Love God and love others. It can't be any simpler 
And at the same time, it can't be more challenging and profound. Let us love God and love others. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your good word that you have preserved for us today. We thank you for this profound truth. These are the two most important things that we can do with our life. Love you and love others. Father, we ask that you would give us the strength and the courage and the power to do this. To love you and to love others. We thank you, Lord, for your just unbelievable love for us. May it be the inspiration for us to love you and to love others. Make these things so, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.